listening to the Bi Sci Fi Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Pack, and this is your home for queer positive speculative fiction. Welcome back. My next guest on the podcast is the Philip K. Dick award-winning author of the book of the unnamed midwife, uh, Meg Ellison. Uh, she's here to talk about the third book in that series, The Book of Flora. Uh, I just started the audiobook. It's freaking amazing. And then I realized it was the third book in the series. So I'm going to have to go back and start with The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. But Meg, I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So if you would um, tell us a little bit about that series, um, especially for me, who <laughs> tried to tried to start on the third book. Sure. Uh, so recently a reader told me that her pitch when she was explaining it to her friends was, what if every Mad Max was Fury Road? And I, mm. I just love that description. But it's, it's a little more sedate than that. I always like to tell people it's a post-apocalyptic adventure novel with a female hero. And then as the series goes on, it's a post-apocalypse that explodes notions of gender because the, the apocalypse unfolds along very gendered lines and puts people into very different pressured positions than they currently occupy. So it spans uh, about 150, 160 years, and it really digs into how much things change when we lose anything that looks like gender parity. Right. Absolutely. Wow. I, yeah, I would say it kind of is more like a, a more modern take kind of on if somebody was a fan of like the hand the handmaid's tale like they would really dig yes. this it's very similar in that kind of view of of kind of exploring um patriarchy and what happens when the existing patriarchy maybe breaks down and then what do you get in its place and and yeah it's it's terrifying Absolutely. and amazing and all that stuff um that, that one's a good that's a good comparison. And I usually tell people if you wanted The Handmaid's Tale to be more queer, my books are a good fit for that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's that's one of the things that I, I really I really liked about it, too, is, well, obviously, I dug in with the Book of Flora, which is your latest in the series. Um, did you start off, I guess, with a plan to have that book be about about the character of Flora? Because I, I found without knowing any of the backstory from the other two books, I just found Flora completely fascinating. I didn't I didn't know until I was about halfway through writing the book of Etta. I, I really just fell in love with her. There was one particular scene that I wrote of her and I was just like, oh, man, she's such a great character. And I've come to like her so much as a person. So I, I realized that the third book had to be her story. So that kind of happened along the way. And and she's she's a trans character, correct? She is. In her, in her culture, they're called horse women because right. of some specific ritual beliefs, but she, we would call her a trans woman in our time, yes. Really cool. Um, and I also noticed, too, when I was, uh, like I said, I started the audiobook, and that your narrator for that is a trans woman, which I thought was really cool. Um, she is. It's Shakina Nafak, and she's yeah. an incredible uh, incredible performer, and I was very lucky to get her on the project. She was nothing but fabulous about it. I, I find that like one of the issues that um, we often have, I think, in publishing is that um, when we're telling a story we want told, told authentically is, is making sure that everything from like the cover to even something like a book narrator would have that authenticity carried through. Did you, did you have, were you able to get kind of exactly who you wanted for that right away? Or did you, did, were you able to have some say in it? I, I was. Uh, my publisher is actually really great about that, and they always ask me up front, like, is there anything about this book that needs to be done just right in audio that you don't think the average performer would be able to do? They ask about uh, whether there are 
accents present or whether there are locales that might be difficult for some actors to manifest. And one of the things I said was I would prefer that the, that the narrator for this book be a trans woman because that's authentic to the story. And also there should be more jobs for trans women. And this is one that belongs to right. one. So, uh, so yeah, I was, I was really lucky to get a little say in that and that they listened to me and that I got such a talented performer in the deal. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Um, yeah, and then just and right, absolutely talented too. So that's um, always you know audiobooks are so tough because like um, I'm really picky as an audiobook listener. <laughs> I I've said this before on the podcast. If you haven't ever listened to it, don't. Um, the Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Whoever they got oh, to yeah. write that first book. Apparently they changed after that, but it was like really bad. Like someone who had never heard a Welsh person speak before trying to do a Welsh accent. <laughs> Or like me nice. trying to do a Welsh accent, <laughs> like it just was not. I, I, you know, I'm 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 starting to get into doing some some voice work myself, and it's like you know, everyone always asks, asks you like, can you do accents? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to keep it simple for right now because I'd rather like not get a lot of work than get a lot of work and do it wrong, you know? Um, yeah, people people ask me all the time like, do you do you narrate your own audiobooks? And I always tell them, you know, it's it's a specialized skill set. It's not something that just anybody can do. And I'm really happy to have a professional reader because I would not do it nearly. As good a job seriously it's it's uh, like i said i'm just getting into it and it, it is really tough it is really tough um you think that you know you, i like talking to a microphone all day long i can do i can do this no no <laughs> you, have to, you have to read slower um so what what inspired this trilogy in the first place were you or have you kind of always been into this like post post-apocalyptic kind of genre or did, was there something that sparked it for you I really am into the genre, and I, I like to pin it on having been raised in a succession of evangelical and, and millennialist churches, uh, because they're always focused on the end of the world. And because of that, like my interest in end-of-the-world scenarios just sort of grew naturally. So when I was researching this book and when I was deciding how I would write it, I ended up reading the entire canon of books written about post-apocalyptic scenarios in English. Unless it's very obscure, if it exists in England, in English, I got it, I read it. And as I was wiping out the canon, I realized that there's such a small number that are written from a woman's point of view. And the ones that have women characters, like, they're barely people. They're mostly, like, really convenient cardboard cutouts who never need birth control and never need tampons. And they only get pregnant when it's convenient to the plot. Right. <laughs> and uh, it, it just drove me mad because I realized that how different the apocalypse would look for you know any woman in my life who's been on birth control since she was a teenager to suddenly lose access to it like as we lose the municipal grid of various services that one is a big change and and yeah. from there the the idea just kept snowballing that's 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 actually a great way to approach it it kind of reminds me of um uh i remember when i when uh, people first started really getting into the hunger game series and just everyone being like wow it's so great that, that they talk about that she has to like shave off all her body hair and like you know but like talking about that even and it always bugs me like whenever you watch like a historical movie or something post-apocalyptic and all the women have like these clean underarms and i'm like yeah no it drives me nuts i i remember watching uh an episode of i think it was the walking dead and characters in the show are literally eating dog food and all right. of the women have perfectly plucked eyebrows yeah and just i couldn't believe and it's not just like they have shaved underarms like they have very obviously like electrolysis or like waxing and some like lotioning going on it's like perfectly smooth <laughs> no stubble no like you know how the heck are they i want to know what they're doing because if, right. if that were real we'd all be all over it 
I but, don't live in the apocalypse and I can't look that good on a regular right, basis. Right. So it really does. It strains credulity in many directions. Yeah. It's, it's like a good day if I wear pants, like real pants, like yoga <laughs> pants, right? I, yeah. I am such a cliche, but, uh, <laughs> you know, when you work from home, it's one of those like, you know, no one's going to see me today. And I wore these pants yesterday. No one's going to care. I and it be, just saves money on laundry. Yeah, exactly. I would be great for the apocalypse. Haven't shaved in a month. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, no, but you're absolutely right. I love that concept, too, because, you know, um, one of the things I think, too, um, in our culture, it's not uncommon for a young woman to be on the pill from the time they hit puberty and until they decide to have a family. That's not uncommon. Right. And right. you forget um, how that aids with any cramps you might have. If you have a condition like endometriosis or PCOS, it could help severely with cramping. It's like, exactly. like really painful, but also even just the flow of, okay, yeah, I could deal with, you know, I, I, that, that kind of a flow in a, in a post-apocalyptic environment, but like, what, what about when it's like the worst, the heaviest day, what do you do? Yeah. Right. Or just the, the, the number of us who've never really dealt with the symptoms of say the flu without, you know, access to a drugstore or right. the number of people who, who wouldn't know how to treat like diarrhea from drinking bad water. Like most of us have few to no skills in, in those areas because we've been city dwellers with a lot of convenience all our lives and stuff breaks down quickly when we lose it. That stuff worries me. That's the stuff that scares me. Like horror, whatever. All like, all it worries me about horror is like jump scares. We start talking about post-apocalyptic stuff and you start talking about ta like us having to figure out how to do all these things that no one's known how to do for generations because you go buy them or you, you know terrifying right. to me terrifying it is that's why yeah. i have friends that are very you know crunchy they like to make their own like pain relieving balms and things like that <laughs> i mean i think we all do at this point because there's such a, a trend toward that kind of quote unquote more natural modes of living but it but it does in many ways prevent one of the things that i did a lot of research on in my books which is skill loss right. like uh, imagine imagine if you formed a community but nobody in that community really knew how to make clothes like you end up wearing rags and, and the leftovers of another world until they fall apart or this this community just happens to have people who know how to rig up a, a solar electric grid and they can make use of the equipment that's left over and a neighboring community doesn't have it so that lack of skill comes to define not only the the tenor and quality of your day-to-day -day life but your entire culture right um, one of the things that really stuck out for me too in the book of flora was um that one of the early scenes in the book she goes to um uh, this town that is entirely women. And, um, first of all, I think anyone who, any woman who reads that, that, you know, it's kind of like, that would be awesome. First of all. <laughs> um, but, but the, the, the way I liked the way that, um, there's a discussion too, in there somewhere about, um, whether or not they should allow men to be a part of, um, governing and, and, and should it be all men and should it, or should it just be, you know, on a case by case basis or that sort of thing. And I think, this must be what those conversations are like the other way around. Right. Is that I mean, what happens it, behind closed doors when they talk about women? Right. You think about all the organizations and, and, you know, modes of governance that don't have any women or have one token woman. And the token woman is always, you know, a Margaret Thatcher or a Kellyanne Conway. And you have to wonder, like, is that conversation being had? Are they thinking like, well, maybe they could handle it, maybe a couple. And it's just, it, it's, it's, it's so bizarre that it almost sounds like parody to me. So when you turn it on its head, it becomes quite obvious in that way. Yeah, I like I like that because you whenever you take kind of something that we're we used to seeing and turn it and twist it the other way, and you right. look at it from that perspective, then you really start to see how ridiculous and and like demeaning it kind of is to to talk about these things in these general sweeping you know 
Like, right. oh, what if she's on her period when she's president? She might nuke the whole world, you know? Exactly, exactly. I took every opportunity that I could to to pry apart why we have these conventional pieces of so-called wisdom about the way people are different because of their gender or what we assign to as men's work and what we think of as women's work and how dependent on our culture that really is. So every chance I got, a, every time I got a chance to set it on its head, I did that. I, I also really liked how kind of you explored with Flora um, and, and her, the way her gender um it, it is is kind of a non-issue, but also an issue because there's such a high value placed on the ability to procreate, obviously, in a, in a society where, you know, you're having uh, a breakdown of, of norms and everything. And so the way that that anyone who doesn't fit that that binary mold kind of gets shoved to the side. Um, right. And kind of looking at that in a different way that I feel like um, maybe hasn't been looked at. Um, from a not necessarily from a we're scared of that or that's different so it's bad, but from a more like okay here's a here's a very practical I don't want to say practical because that sounds really uh, you know what I'm trying to say like from this this necessity of we need to to rebuild our race right uh, that was one of the things that I also hated about the post apocalypse genre especially. Uh, there's a, a big section of that genre that got written in the 1950s and early 1960s that's really focused on nuclear disaster for obvious reasons because everybody was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But especially in the 50s before the advent of the pill, there is an implicit and never discussed necessity to uh, continue the species. Mm-hmm. And it's it's never a question of whether people will lay down their autonomy and, and accept you know, whatever breeding pairs or breeding schedules they're about to be put on, because this is a, a shared value that's not even worth questioning or discussing. And although it gets slightly better after the 60s, it's still accepted, like, a priori, of course, we have to continue the species. And right. there's just no question, there's no discussion about it. It's it's the same as the, that operating principle in, in The Handmaid's Tale. Well, of course, you just have to enslave women, because otherwise there will be no more people. Right. Right. Yes, because, you know, if you're, if you're not breeding, then what good are you? Exactly, because I, what other utility do we have? I'm, I'm absolutely friggin' useless. I'm absolutely <laughs> useless. Um, yeah, I, I know, and, and I, I sound like I'm trivializing such a thing, but it's really, to me, that's the kind of stuff that is... The last um, the episode I just finished editing, um, the interview that I did, was um, uh, with... Um, uh, Michael G. Williams, and, and uh, he's a gay man, writes, you know, mm. queer fiction. And we were talking a little bit about the same thing, about how once you take away that um, the traditional, like, binary of gender and sexuality, you are, right. by, in it, by its definition, dismantling the patriarchy in just that we one are. action, right? And so, <laughs> right. And so even so you took it, like, but there is also a biological need to further, you know, the, the species, as you said. And, and, and so in a post-apocalyptic world, what is going to take precedence? Well, survival is always going to be what we re- 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 revert. <laughs> survival is always going to be what we revert to in a, in a right. scenario like that, you know? And uh, that's scary, too, for those of us that maybe, you know, I I would probably if I don't even know if I'm fertile I have no idea I've not tried to have child but like in the, something like The Handmaid's Tale or in like your world that you've created here like I would be like okay you're gonna go over here and have a baby now like I'd be like heck no I don't want to you know <laughs> right right and uh, that's so scary you know it's like wow and 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 quite frankly our parents and grandparents were forced into that by virtue of not having any other options you know right 
Exactly. And it's, it's, it's astonishing to me that we refer to any of our own past civilizations as civilized right. when that was the condition for half the species. We don't have any civilization to fight for if people are coerced into reproductive slavery. Absolutely. I mean, I think about even my own mom, like my mom is wonderful and progressive and, you know, forward thinking as she was dropped out of college at 19 because she got married and then got pregnant. And right. There you are. That, that's that's all of our moms. Like yeah. even even our, our generation's mothers had the option of the pill in many cases. But uh, even after Roe v. Wade, many of them didn't feel like they had the moral uh, option of uh, terminating a pregnancy. And and still others were just pressured by their culture to perform the the heterosexual pair bonding rituals that would place them as part of a unit and not as yeah. an individual and that's that's so unutterably sad i don't even like to think about it i know i know i think i've um my mom and i have talked a lot too about my grandmother and my and then her oldest sister who we think was probably a lesbian or asexual one of one of the Interesting. two because mm-hmm. she was very much she never got married uh she kind of devoted herself to the church but didn't become a nun uh, we were we right. were all our, my family was Catholic, um, and uh, we just the way she would always talk about men made me think like you know I think she probably could have been a closeted lesbian that would have been that would have fit really right in line with her and then my grandmother I think was bisexual. Um, Interesting. Yeah, she was we more than once. Um, my well, the the funniest story that we always like to tell is we were at uh, in Missouri for my my uh, my brother's wedding. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, my we, my mom gets the bill from the hotel room my grandmother had stayed in, and she'd watched, like, lesbian porn. The best part was she came down to breakfast, though, and was going on and on and on about the lesbians on TV. And, oh, my gosh. And the more she talks about it, we realize she watched the whole darn thing. Like, she didn't just, like, <laughs> accidentally, like, pay for the movie. Like, she sat down and watched it. Good, good for her. Yes, you know, good. but, um, but yeah. you know, she, she – I think my grandmother probably, you know, would have had – had she had the – the language or the, the ability. Yeah. Yeah, for I, sure. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see people who have reached the ages of, you know, 40, 50, 60 without having the, the language or the access to information to understand a big facet of themselves who maybe always felt slightly alienated or slightly mystified by their own nature. And only just at that stage in life coming to the understanding that, there was this whole world out there and I just didn't know how to get in touch with it. And that's, it's moving and it's incredible. And it's also sad that, you know, you'd have to live your whole life not knowing these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about, you know, um, go, I, I'm glad in, in some ways, you know, that, you know, I don't want to say glad that's I'm, I'm all over the place tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in are big issues. Yeah. Yeah. In in some ways, like, Thank God for, you know, women like our like our mothers who who went through that so that we kind of were able to have more choices. But at the same time, I wish they'd had those choices and I wish their mothers and, you know, their mothers like how sad it was that it took us to the 20th century to get to a point where people being born in the latter half of the 20th century were the ones who finally had the choices. Not to say we're not still stigmatized for that. You know, I'm. No, yeah, we're far from perfect. Right. But. It, but, it is it is amazing to think that, you know, uh, the, the history of especially womankind, but history of all humankind, like, like turned on its axis, not 60 years ago. I yeah. mean, this has not been long. 
And it could, and it's, and it, and I like the idea of any kind of dystopian or post-apocalyptic literature because it's kind of like, it just kind of shows how that's kind of resting on the head of a pin. It's precarious. You know, we, we can't take it for granted. It's not that ingrained in our culture yet, you know? Um, right. Because like I said, it hasn't been long. So we right. have, we have a pretty thin veneer of, of difference between it's literally one generation and that is not anything like an established right. No, not at all. So is there, um, so you said you kind of read, um, went through a lot of um, post-apocalyptic fiction and dystopian and stuff. Did you, did you find anything that you were like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the ticket. Or did you really have to write your own to get what you wanted out of it? I definitely have influences to whom I, I owe a great deal. Um, Octavia Butler, um, Parable of the Sower in particular, but also to a different extent, Kindred. Uh, she was a visionary. There's no other way to say that. And, and an incredibly gifted writer yeah. and gone far too soon. I wish I wish she could have lived a thousand years and kept writing. Um, also, P.D. James and her novel Children of Men, although she was primarily a mystery writer, she had a hellish dystopian vision uh, that, that had a, a profound effect on me. And, of course, Margaret Atwood, in uh, The Handmaid's Tale. There were there were a handful. There were a couple. And then uh, there were some that I think had the opposite effect because I was so disappointed in how they were written and how poorly it portrayed a woman's point of view. And those ranged from very good books. Like, I love The Road by Cormac McCarthy. It's mm-hmm. one of the most affecting, affecting things I've ever read in my life. I was for six weeks really depressed and just uh, deprived of any meaning in life and searching really hard for what it meant to carry the fire and what the point of life was. And that's not something that all books can do. But also, there's one woman in that story, and she's completely disposable. Uh, she she gives birth to the boy so that the man and the boy can travel together and then conveniently kills herself and is never thought of again. And it's it's really cold the way she's discarded and that that was enormously motivating to me. And then the other is um, a gift upon the shore. I can never remember who wrote that, but that one has a woman writer, and it's it's about all these same principles, you know, how things change and and what we expect after the end of the world. M. K. Wren. There we go. M.K. Wren wrote a book from a woman's point of view about a dystopian society that allows for the main character to be physically abused in her heterosexual pair bond and seeks to excuse that abuse because, mm. of course, he would. Of course, he's right. under incredible pressure, and then where else should he let off steam? And it was just so disappointing. I mean, it was written not that long ago, not so long ago that I find that excusable. It's, it's the early 90s, I think. So, so all of these books came together swirling, mostly in the good sense and some in the I must do better sense. Right. We need, we need those things. And, and, I, and I think, too, showing, a, unfortunately, showing abuse from that angle, that is what how women rationalize it, how they stay in those relationships. And sometimes seeing those things done poorly can make people realize that, too. It's just I, you don't want that to be the only thing out there for people to read about. No. Yeah. You know. I was really glad to find some good examples, and, and it's yeah. really helpful to, to be able to point to, you know, this is the tradition in which I'm writing. These are the people whose books I want my books to be shelved nearby. And uh, and with Butler and James, I was in good company. Yeah, it's and I and I would say just from the little bit that I've that I've read is it, it ranks right up there. I mean, if, if anybody listening to this is kind of on the fence about it, this is this is that kind of quality of, of writing. And it's but it's so much more queer than any. It's so much more queer than any of those that that you've kind of talked about that I that I've read, at least. But um, 
that, you know, it just has that smart, um, it didn't leave anybody out, I guess is what I'm saying. It didn't leave the, those of us that maybe don't exist in that heterosexual, you know, mainstream, didn't leave us out. There's a there's a joke on Tumblr that I've always loved, but I've also started to live by as a writer, and it's it's you know sort of mocking somebody in a review and saying I don't understand why there are so many gay characters in this book. That's not realistic, and the tag is meanwhile I haven't seen a straight person in four days. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's very much my life. Like I wrote all these characters into my apocalypse because it's the people that I know. Right. I'm. I'm incredibly privileged and also just stuck in the worst rental market in the world. But also, like, I love the Bay Area and I love that I I have in my close circles and my near circles and my professional circles and my colleagues, like, I'm part of a generation of queer writers and we have a greater freedom to live our lives and to write our worlds than any generation that's come before us. And yeah. the adventure and the revolutionary nature of that cannot be overstated. I'm so proud of us. Like, we're putting yeah. out some great stuff. Absolutely. And, and we still need more. So, you know, I, right. I just like, I want to keep challenging like the publishing world to be like more, 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 because there's so many stories that haven't been told. And there's so many voices out there that, that, you know, that have things to say that we haven't heard yet. Right. I have new writers, like baby writers, writers coming up, asking me all the time, like, this is an original. I just want to write this story. And it's basically Cinderella. And I'm like, right. But nobody's written Cinderella from the point of view of a girl from Sri Lanka who's also gay. Like, you have a version of this that has not been told. Don't listen to anybody who tells you it's not original. Get your voice out there. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm the other audiobook that I'm listening. I listen to audiobooks because I, uh, I have a job where I can kind of, I need the, dist- <laughs> I need the, I need the, uh, like the oral distraction. I need that while I'm working or I'll lose my mind. But um, I'm also listening to um, uh, Tommy Adeyemi's, um Children of Blood and Bone. Oh, which, it's so good. I know, right? And it's such one of those, yes. like there's so many elements of that that I think, you know, we've heard, we've, we've seen these kinds of stories, but not told from this point of view and not told in this way. And that's the stuff. It's like, that's what I want to read. I've read all the all the stuff we've seen. You know, it's like, it's all, I, right. want, I, want, I want the new take on it. And I, no, I love nothing better than a good, you know, queer retelling or, you know, something that takes place in another part of the world that we don't read about as much or I just love right. that stuff. Absolutely. No, me too. And I, and I'm grateful every time I get to see a new story in a new paradigm or an old story in a new paradigm. And uh, we're living in an embarrassment of riches. Like we're so lucky to have uh, a diversity of publishing. And I, I know publishing is still too white and too straight and we're still way better off than anybody who came before us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are you working on now? Can you tell us what's maybe going to be next for you or give us a hint? Absolutely. <laughs> so I wrote my first thriller novel that I'm, I'm really excited about. And I'm, I'm at the stage of uh, going through edits with my agent on it and, and making it better. And I'm, I'm really hoping to get that out into the world next year. And I also wrote my first YA novel and it's, it's currently with a publisher and I, I should have paperwork for it really soon and I can make an announcement, Yay. but it, it draws, <laughs> thank you. It draws heavily from my experience uh, as a young child. And I, I grew up in some pretty unorthodox and, and not great ways. And so I wanted to write it for people like me who came from a house they couldn't explain to their friends. I like that. I like that. I'm, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. That's even just that little hint. I'm like, I love YA. So <laughs> me too. It's so it's, it's, I feel like there's so much more, um, freedom in it a little bit, even though I think that there's, more, I feel like as a, as a writer, I feel more responsibility to a young adult audience, but, um, that also there's just, there's freedom in, in the stories you can tell. That, Absolutely. Yeah. 
Now, and uh, I, I know that there's a, there's a lot of tension in YA these days, and the question yeah. is whether or not you're meant to set a moral example or whether your work carries more importance because the audience is so... In, in its formative state, and uh, and that that's been that's been on my mind. That's been in consideration while I worked on this. But I also, at the same time, sought out great work in YA so that I could I could refer to authors who'd been in it longer than I have and are doing an an amazing job. Like I just read Riverland by Fran Wilde, and it's 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 a portal fantasy, but it's also about what it's like to grow up in uh, an abusive household, and it's beautiful on both sides. And the parallelism is just so touching and so well rendered. And uh, I'm a big fan of Erin Jade Lang, and she writes about the complicated lives that young kids have because of the internet and because of the way they're always connected and the way that they are never really free of the judgments and opinions of others. And then I'm, I'm really excited to follow great women writers in, in those difficult subjects for a young adult audience. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, well, if uh, readers wanted to get in touch with you online, are you on Twitter, Facebook? Where's the best place for people to reach you? I'm everywhere. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Maggie Lisset on Twitter, and I, I'm on there far too often. <laughs> uh, I have a Facebook fan page for my writing, Maggie Lisset, and you can always keep up on updates at MaggieLisset.com. Awesome. Meg, I want to thank you so much. It's been a great discussion. And like I said, I absolutely, I was getting so into the Book of Flora, and I'm going to go back and, and do the whole trilogy. But it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much. Been listening to the Buy Sci Fi Podcast. Find us online at buysci fi podcast.wordpress.com and on Twitter at buysci fi.